Good evening, and welcome back to the New York City Church of Christ. My name is Richard Alloway, and I serve here as the evangelist for the Brooklyn Ministry of the Church. If you're visiting with us tonight, I want to say welcome. Over the last several weeks, our brother Gordon Ferguson from the Dallas Church has been teaching us from the book of Revelation. Tonight, he's going to be going through chapters 13 through 17. Like the past few weeks, we've recorded all the messages, and you're welcome to go listen to them on YouTube. Again, welcome to Midweek Tonight, brothers and sisters from Brooklyn, from Staten Island, and from the Harlem Ministry. At this time, I'm going to ask one of our women's ministry leaders here in Brooklyn, Daisy Aguaya, to lead us in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much for one more day that you allow us to be alive, God. We come to you full of gratitude. We come to you, Father, as your children, Father, because we love you, God, and we're so grateful to get to know about more about your word, God. Father, at this moment, I would like to pray for the people in Turkey and Syria, God. They have gone through such a devastating time with this earthquake, God. Father, I pray that you be with the so many people, Father, that have lost loved ones, Father, over 11,000 people lost already, God. I pray that you be with those parents that have lost their children, God. Father, with people that are still looking for survivors at this moment, how difficult, how challenging it must be to go through this, to this devastating time, God. But we know that you're a God of all comfort. So I pray, Father, that you be with, with them there, that you provide, God. We, I pray for miracles that many, many more people will be found, God. Father, as we look through these things, through the images on television, God, Father, our hearts break, Father, to see the suffering of people. So I pray, God, that you help us, Father, to do our part, to pray, to just to, just to, to, to think of, of, of uh, these situations, Heavenly Father. And we trust in you, Father, that you're in control of everything. Be with us tonight, Heavenly Father, as we continue reading the book of Revelations. God, thank you for Ferguson. Um, uh, for Gordon, God, Father, helping, Father, to, to continue to teach us, open our minds and open our hearts so that we can understand your scripture, God. Father, thank you that the Bible is everlasting, that it doesn't change. Father, that we can read it, that we can understand it, God. Father, we love you. Be with us tonight. Thank you that we can get together, Father, as brothers and sisters from different regions to be with one another, to learn from you, to sing to you, to worship you, and to to present our request to you, God. We love you, and I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. He's on time. He's on 
Good evening, church. It's so good to be here uh, with everyone again this evening. This is week four. Uh, I am Scott Kirkpatrick from the Harlem Church, and uh, it is just so good to, to be with my brothers and sisters as we sit together again at the feet of Gordon Ferguson. Gordon uh, is an incredible teacher uh, in, uh, in our movement, in our churches, and Gordon has taught all over the world. Uh, he's a great friend. Uh, of course, Gordon has been married to Teresa for uh, 58 years, and uh, he has two children. Um, uh, they're grown. In fact, Brian, his 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 son, is uh, 54 years old. He he turns 55 in April, right uh, three days after I turned 55. So uh, he's a great man too. Uh, and he has four grandchildren. Gordon is 80 years old, and uh, we have been he has been in the ministry for over 50 years. And uh, it's just an honor to be able to. Uh, sit at the feet of Gordon, uh, sit at the feet of our brother, and uh, Gordon, uh, continue to teach us uh, what you've been teaching us the last few weeks. Uh, bro, we love you deeply, and we thank you deeply uh, for what you're doing uh, to encourage the church. Uh, without further ado, I want to introduce our brother Gordon Ferguson for week four. Get my mute turned off there. Okay, it's uh, good to be back with you again. Thank you, Scott, for that introduction and uh, Richard as well earlier. But it's good to be back with you and to pick up uh, teaching the book of Revelation. Uh, every time I feel some sort of compulsion to introduce it again, uh, simply because there are people here for the first time. And as uh, was said, you can watch the other presentations that are recorded and catch up on it. But in chapter one of Revelation, you have the book introduced, the writer introduced, who is John the Apostle, and Jesus introduced in symbolic ways and very beautiful ways in chapter one. Chapters two and three were introduced to the church of the first century and what it looked like, the good points and the bad points. Uh, then in chapter four, Jesus is entered. I mean, the father is introduced. Chapter five, Jesus is introduced. Chapter six, we start the real symbolic language, which we've talked about quite a lot and what the symbols mean. But in chapter six, we get the, the seals that are open, and they explain why the persecution is going to be so bad, and it basically is due to the preaching of the gospel to people that don't want to hear it. Jesus had that problem in his earthly ministry. We have it now. Some are open to listen. The majority are not, but everyone needs the opportunity to say yes or no, so they need to hear the message. At the end of the seals, you get the uh, earthquake, which is just an announcement that God, in fact, is going to bring judgment. And so he does that in several different forms. There's a series of seven trumpets, and all of those show an effect on a third of what they actually hit. And so it's just a way in symbolic language, barred from the Old Testament, many of the symbols from uh, the uh, Exodus period, uh, when the Israelites were going through the 10 plagues and coming out of Egypt. And so you get symbols from there and the different prophets of the Old Testament. And so you have the series of seven trumpets. And then after the seven trumpet sounds, then we go back into the second half of the book in a different approach. And so the judgments are given. John is told in chapter 10 that he's got to keep on prophesying that even after the seven trumpet sounds, which is usually the end, after the seventh trumpet, 
he still has some more to do. And so that's the message of chapter 10. Uh, chapter 11, you find the faithful ones uh, protected by God. And then you find uh, either the unfaithful ones being judged, or perhaps it's just showing that the uh, Christians were being protected in one way spiritually and not outwardly, physically. And of course, that was the same message of the 144,000 back in chapter 7. And we'll meet them again uh, in chapter 14, uh, even tonight. But once we got to the seventh trumpet, at the end of chapter 11, uh, we didn't uh, stop there because the book goes on and it switches from the persecution viewed outwardly and goes behind the scenes in chapter 12 to show that it's a much bigger battle than that going on. What's on the earth is, is merely uh, representing the much bigger battle, the spiritual battle between God and Satan. And so in chapter 12, you have a woman giving birth to a son who would be the ruler uh, with an iron scepter, and that, of course, was Jesus. And then the woman goes into the wilderness during this time of persecution, and it looks like the same woman, and in one sense it is. The, old, the first woman represented Israel who gave birth to Jesus, the nation of Israel, the Jewish nation. And then the woman that went into the wilderness during the time of persecution, that woman was the continuation through the church, because uh, we are one. Uh, the faithful are one. Old Testament or New Testament, we've given our hearts and lives to God. Not every Jewish person in the nation did that. In fact, it was only a remnant. And Paul teaches a lot about that in Romans, but that's another book for another time. So we are introduced then uh, to the persecution and to the dragon uh, who was behind all of this. The dragon representing Satan had battled with Michael the archangel and he lost and was cast out of heaven. And so he came after the church, could not corrupt the whole church. And so he goes after individual Christians. And on that thought, we end chapter 12. Now, let me get the screen share on. Okay, do you hear me okay, Richard? Hold a thumbs up if you do. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I don't know what happened there. It just cut out. So let's read a bit about what starts happening in chapter 13. Satan is the dragon. And the rest of the book, we'll see that he has three allies all standing for some aspect of the Roman Empire, which was the persecutor. It started off with the church being persecuted by Jews who did not accept Jesus as Messiah, and then it moved on to the Roman Empire, and they began to do the uh, persecution, and it got worse and worse, and by the end of the first century, uh, it was really bad. But the dragon has three allies in helping him, three different aspects of the Roman Empire. 
The first one is the political Rome represented by the emperors. The second is false religion that demands that people do worship the emperor. And then in chapter 17, we will be introduced to worldly Rome or materialistic Rome uh, represented by a prostitute riding on the political beast. So it says, the dragon stood on the shore of the sea. That's Satan. And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had 10 horns and seven heads with 10 crowns on its horns and on each head a blasphemous name that referred to worshiping the emperor as a god. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. Then I skip a verse here and there. The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority 42 months. We've mentioned that before, 42 months, 1260 days, three and a half years, a time, times, and a half a time. All of that is three and a half in one way or the other, and that is representing this period of great instability and persecution. In verse eight, all the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. I could preach for an hour just on that last sentence or last part of the sentence. The lamb slain from the creation of the world. Before God ever created humans, he already knew the price tag, and that was God becoming a man in the person of Jesus and dying for our sins. The creator dying for the created. Uh, that could uh, take up many sermons, and I have preached many on that. So the beasts, the 144,000, and the bowls of wrath, we'll get to all of that in chapters 13 through 16. You have the sea beast. He came out of the sea of humanity, and uh, that came from an Old Testament passage. The land beast will be described later as the false prophet because he is the one that's insisting, uh, even legally, that people had to worship the emperor. So the sea beast comes out of the sea of humanity from which world powers come. And those symbols are found back in chapter 17 and 57 of the prophecy of Isaiah. Uh, he has authority delegated by Satan. When you look back in 12.3, you find that Satan is described. He has uh, 10 heads and, uh, or seven heads, 10 horns, and seven crowns. Uh, it's interesting that the beast here has seven heads, uh, 10 horns, and 10 crowns. So if uh, the, the heads stand for intelligence. Satan is much more intelligent. He's got crowns on his heads. Uh, but uh, the beast has great authority and power. So he's got crowns on each of his horns. That seems to be what is depicted here. He's got names of blasphemy, and that was the emperor's claim of divinity. It was no big deal for an emperor to be declared uh, a god after his death. I mean, they had gods for everything. When Paul was in Athens in Acts 17, he said, you got so many gods, you got one extra here, the unknown God, just in case you've missed one. But they had so, so many different gods in the Roman Empire that for a dead emperor to be called a god was no big deal. But with uh, Domitian, near the end of the first century, he insisted on being called Lord God Domitian in his lifetime, and there were statues made of him, and people were told that they had to worship him as, as a god while he was alive, and that's what is going to be behind much of this persecution. Now, in the part that we read, it said that one of the heads, standing for the emperors, one of the heads of the beasts, 
was smitten but healed. That was probably a reference to Nero's death because he was the first of the Christian persecutors. He reigned mid-century, 54 AD to 68, uh, but then Domitian came along not too long after that, and he resumed the persecution on an empire-wide basis, much more so than Nero had done. Now, Nero had been terrible. Uh, in the city of Rome itself, he burned Christians alive on crosses. He put them in his garden to light his garden at night and put pitch all over them and lit them afire while they were still alive. He was a horrible, crazy man. But Domitian was much more uh, measured in his persecution. It was much broader. It was for specific reasons, etc. But the beast was worshipped. Political Rome was exalted by the nations because of her contributions to the world. And we'll get more of that as we go. Now, we're going to get introduced to a second beast uh, a few verses later. In verse 11, it says, Then I saw a second beast coming up out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. And so these, the beast is represented by all of the chain of emperors. And uh, Nero had been one of those. Domitian is the one that he is talking about here. So the persecutor Nero was gone, but in a sense, his fatal wound had been healed. And so Domitian came in the spirit and power of Nero as a persecutor, just like John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah from the Old Testament. It's a similar type thing here. Verse 14, because of the signs was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. All who refused to worship the image uh, were, would be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. You remember back in, in chapter six, when we're talking about the seals, you had a white horse standing for the preaching of the gospel. It was followed by a red horse, which was bloodshed as uh, Christians were killed for doing it. And the third one was a black horse and it stood for economic uh, persecution or economic uh, prejudice and limitation. And so this, he gets back to the subject here and makes it quite clear. And so the mark on the right hand would be their service. The mark on their foreheads would mean that they would accept uh, mentally, they would accept intellectually what was being said about the emperors and the need to worship them. And so without that mark, and later on, they actually set up uh, places that you went and pinched incense and said, Caesar is Lord. And without having a certificate that you had done that, you couldn't get a job. And so it became much more elaborate after the first century, but it started off in the first century. And so it says this, the earth beast came out of the earth, and that was where the stream of Satan's lies were swallowed by the earth back in chapter uh, 12. And when he says the uh, land beast here looked like a lamb, that uh, stands for false religion. And Jesus talked about those that would look like a lamb, but not be. He was the same as the false prophet. He's just called that later. And so the land beast or the uh, false teacher, the lamb that was preaching lies to uphold political wrong, the first beast, the sea beast, uh, he was the same as the false prophet. And that's uh, in later chapters that we will see. He spoke as a dragon, and of course, Satan is called a dragon in chapter 12, 
in early 13. So he is an agent of Satan. And in this cross-reference, 2 Corinthians 11.3, he talks about people that look like they are messengers of truth, but they're liars, and they are actually following Satan in their false teaching. Then the uh, worship was caused by the first, uh, um, by the second beast to worship the first beast, political Rome especially the emperor is the head of state. So we've already talked about the uh, hand and forehand and the mark of the beast uh, that allowed them to be able to buy and sell and work and avoid persecution. Now he says that it's a number of man, 666. Now there have been speculations, as you can imagine, that would cover up half a book probably about who the uh, the man was, the one who was 666. And I, I went back and looked in my exposition of Revelation that's now called Revelation Revealed. I went back and looked in that, and back when I wrote it some years ago, I actually had pulled up some information about some recent books, and Saddam Hussein was one of those guys that was talked about, and he was rebuilding Babylon that Revelation talks about, and he was fashioning himself after, after Nebuchadnezzar, the old uh, empire of Babylon, et cetera. And of course, uh, Saddam's been dead for a long time now. And so has Stalin, and so has Khrushchev, and so have many uh, that have been called the person who is the mark of the beast here. What I think the simplest explanation is, and I've read many different explanations, trust me, uh, what makes the most sense is that the number six was the number of failure. It's like our 13, it was a superstitious number because seven was the perfect number and seven is all through Revelation. So it, the six fell just short. And so 666, I think simply means failure upon failure upon failure or evil raised to its higher power. I don't think it's any more complex than that. And since many conjectures about it have failed, probably by now hundreds of them, uh, we might should look for a little simpler explanation than some man of history that quickly becomes a part of history as a dead person. One of my favorite songs, it says, one line of it says, uh, before you know the future is the past. And isn't that true? What's future right now to us soon will be past. And that's true of us as human beings. You know, we look at our future and pretty soon people will say, Gordon who? Uh, or Scott who? Or Richard who? I mean, it, it, it's like that. History goes by fast. And so that would be my simple explanation for it. And out of all the theories I've read, it makes more sense uh, to deal with numbers as symbols, like the book does so much, whether we're talking about 144,000 or a thousand or six or uh, time, times and a half a time or whatever, numbers are so big in Revelation, I would just rather interpret 666 as the number of evil raised to its highest power, just like we did with the numbers uh, involving 144,000. Speaking of which, we are back to them in chapter 14. Uh, we have gone through now the uh, trumpets. We're going to get uh, or get to, we're going to get to uh, trumpets and bowls are all judgments of God here. But he talks about the 144,000 on Mount Zion. You know, if you go back and read Hebrews 12, that is a beautiful passage. It says, You have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem. And, and then he goes on down and talks about the church. And so one way that I use that passage is to remind people that when we are worshiping together as the church, we are actually coming to Mount Zion, the heavenly city, the heavenly Jerusalem. It's not just us who are there. Sometimes people say, well, I, you know, I'm in a small church. Well, that's all you can see. But trust me, when you come together to worship, there's a really big group. He says innumerable hosts of angels are there. 
So church services that we're attending are actually really big if we could see it all. But that to me is a really good thought. It should keep us on our toes spiritually on Sunday. It's not just a bunch of folks gathered around to have a little church time. Uh, this is a holy experience with heaven and earth, the kingdom on earth combined with the kingdom of heaven. We're all together when we come together. So that's uh, on a side note. 144,000, we just said that's taking the religious number of 12, multiplying it by itself, 144,000 is a complete number. So the 144,000 stands for all of the redeemed, those who back in chapter seven were sealed and protected by God during the persecution that was about to really break out. Now, they're protected spiritually, but not physically because they could lose their lives, but then they just went home to be with God, which Paul said in Philippians 1 was very far better in the first place. We've got to remember that if we belong to God. Now, he describes them a bit differently here. He says, these are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. They follow the lamb wherever he goes, they were purchased from, from among mankind and offered his first fruits to God and to the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. And if you put it back in that setting, uh, one of the big things that we discovered in chapters two and three is that they, the early Christians were tempted to go into the temples because that's where everyone gathered. That was their gathering place. That was where they did banking. That is where their trade unions met. And they ate, uh, they sacrificed an animal uh, to one of the gods and then they ate it together. And there was often immorality involved in it with the goddesses, the priestesses that uh, you worship the goddesses through by having sex with them. Gods of fertility, goddesses of fertility, that sort of thing. So here he's describing them because they were pure. They didn't defile themselves with women. They didn't go in and participate in what went on in the temple. They remained spiritually virgins. And that's what he's talking about. And there are several places in the New Testament uh, where our, our purity is uh, described in a spiritual way. In fact, in the Old Testament, where it says that they committed adultery with uh, the idols, uh, usually that's referring to a spiritual thing. They're not remaining faithful to God. Uh, and he said that he was married to them. And so there's a spiritual marriage between us and God. And if we're not spiritually faithful to him, then we're guilty of spiritual adultery. He says they follow the lamb wherever he goes. A lot of good stuff in uh, John's gospel on that one, chapter 10 of John especially, the good shepherd. It says they were purchased from mankind and offered his first fruits to God and the lamb. We uh, belong to him. No lie was found in their mouths. And that would refer to the emperor worship, saying Caesar is Lord. So if you look at the background of Revelation, that's rather what was going on. And so the 144,000 are described, but by being described, they are being reminded, the early Christians being reminded, this is what God is calling us to be. This is what God is calling us to avoid uh, because so many, even of the early Christians were falling prey uh, to lies from Satan, uh, being told that they could do these things that the society was doing and as long as they believed the right things, they were okay, uh, no matter what they were actually doing as far as their deeds. And that's always a lie. A lot of people believe that even today, though. I mean, there are a lot of people in churches that uh, are doing all kinds of immorality, doing a lot of things that are wrong. And yet they think that because they believe the right things and have, quote, faith in Jesus, they're okay. Uh-uh, they are not okay. When we are not living the life that God calls us to live, we're not okay. Now, no one lives it perfectly. I'm not saying we're sinless, far from it. But our heart is set on God and we are following God as our habitual way of life 
and as our desire. That's what we want to do is be without sin. And so when we do sin, we're quick to repent and we get back on the track and our heart is and our characteristic way of life is we are being faithful to God. So anyway, great little chapter there. Uh, Babylon the Great in verse eight represents uh, uh, Imperial Rome in its evil as a literal Babylon suggested the captivity uh, evils to the Jews back in the Old Testament period of the bondage in Babylon. It's interesting to me that the Christians already viewed, Babylon, uh, viewed Rome as Babylon. I mean, amongst the Christians, they were already calling Rome Babylon because there were so many similarities. There was so much evil. There was, there was so much ungodliness. There was persecution at the root of both of them. Ultimately, Babylon took the uh, northern kingdom of Israel into captivity, um, or the southern kingdom, rather, into captivity. And so they were the persecutors, like Rome was. And in 1 Peter 5, as the apostle Peter signs off his book, he says, those in Babylon salute you. Well, he wasn't in literal Babylon. He was in Rome. But by then, uh, the early Christians already saw the connection long before uh, Peter, I mean, before John actually wrote the book of Revelation. Okay, Babylon described as the prostitute in chapter 17, and that was the worldly aspect of Rome. And so you have the political aspect of Rome as shown through the empress that demanded emperor worship. You had the false prophet or the land beast that held up the uh, political worship. And then you had the prostitute in chapter 17, uh, reference to Rome in its worldliness. In chapter 14, you go on, you have a harvest uh, of the earth. It doesn't say good or bad, but from other passages, you see that God always harvests the righteous first, and then he punishes uh, and has the harvest of the wicked who are cast into hell. And so you have a harvest that takes place in the early part, and then you have all the grapes uh, gathered and the wine press. They're going to be stomped on in the wine press, and that's symbolic of God's wrath, and that comes from Isaiah 63. But so often you have that, that uh, first reaping of the good folks, and then the bad folks go to the wrong place. Whether it's all the fish that Jesus talked about being pulled out, you separate the good ones and then throw the bad ones away, or whether it's John the Baptist talking about Jesus uh, harvesting and then uh, the wheat and then taking the chaff and burning it. It's, it, it's always in that order, and I think that's what's going on in chapter 14 uh, when the earth's harvest is reaped in two different ways, the righteous first, then the unrighteous. Then introduction to the bowls. We had the trumpets in the earlier chapters, and they were warnings. We'll talk about the differences between them and the bowls. But in chapter 15, you have an interlude uh, because God is preparing uh, for the seven bowls of wrath to be poured out, which are the final judgments on Rome that bring her down. And so the uh, Chapter describes seven angels and the fact that judgment is coming. There is smoke filling this. No one can come in. It's certain. Nothing is going to stop it. And you have seven angels who sang the, Mo the song of Moses and the Lamb, and then each took a bowl of wrath and one by one poured out the wrath of God on the persecutors on the Roman Empire. It says they sang the, the song of Moses and the Lamb. You see, it, it, it's one people old and new, people with a heart for God that are faithful to him. And so Moses was uh, the first leader of God's people in a big way uh, as they became a nation under God and built the tabernacle and started all of the worship sequences that they did all the way through the Old Testament from that point. Uh, so you have Moses, but then you have Jesus as the second Moses uh, or someone like Moses who would deliver in the same way. Uh, Moses took them through the wilderness into the promised land. Jesus takes us through the wilderness 
of this world and gets us into the promised land of heaven. And so they sang the song of Moses and the Lamb. I love the connection. We got it back in chapter 12 with a woman who was seen as a Jewish woman who became the Christian woman uh, because it was all one. It was all faithful to God. In fact, it's good on that note to remember that when Jesus died, his, his uh, death, his, his bloodshed was not simply for those who live from that point forward, not at all. He died for everyone who had a heart for God and lived for God prior to that time. In Hebrews 9, in verse uh, 15 it is, he talks about the blood of Christ. The death of Christ was for those, uh, the sins under the first covenant, under the Mosaic covenant. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 25, he talks about the sins committed before. He didn't say how long before. He didn't limit it to the Jewish people. I think he went all the way back to Adam in, in uh, Romans 3.25 and said that Jesus died for the sins that had not been punished. Well, why hadn't they been punished? Because God knew that Jesus was going to die, and God is timeless. So in God's mind, even when sins were going on during the law of Moses period and before, when the sins were going on and people were trying hard to serve God and had a heart for God and were faithful to him, uh, their sins weren't counted against them because God knew as a timeless being exactly when Jesus was going to die and his, his uh, blood took care of all of those sins. That's one of my illustrations from Romans that I love. If I owed Richard a uh, hundred bucks, well, let's, let's make it a thousand. If I owed Richard a thousand dollars, and uh, I was talking about that, and, and Scott jumped in and said, hey, Gordon, you don't have to worry about that. Uh, I'll take care of that for you. I, I'll see Richard. We live in New York. I, I, I'll pay the $1,000 for you. Now, at that point, no money would have changed hands, none at all. And yet Richard would no longer be looking to me for that $1,000. He would be looking to Scott. You see, God saw the cross before it ever occurred in history because history has to do with time and time has to do with this creation, not with God. And so in God's mind, uh, Jesus was slain from the foundation of the world. And we already saw that in chapter 13 of Revelation. So a lot of sermons in this one. I just can't get to all of them. Okay, now we get to seven bowls, the final wrath, the final judgment poured out. The similarities between the trumpets that were more warnings, trying to get people to repent, uh, and then between the bowls of wrath that are poured out, they are similar. The contents are related, woes upon nature and man, with much of the symbolism coming from the Egyptian plagues. It ends with a judgment scene, and the bowls are poured out on men who uh, have the mark of the beast. And so the judgment is going to fall on those who didn't follow Jesus. They didn't have his mark on them, his seal on them. They had the mark of the beast. And so the judgments uh, were given in the form of trumpets to warn them, to try to get them to repent. Now they've sent away the day of grace. And in the end of it all, God is going to bring the judgment on them. And that is what the bowls of wrath will represent. Uh, there are some differences. Uh, the bowls and the trumpets, trumpets called repentance. The bowls are after the hope of repentance is passed. The trumpets were partial, touching only a third of the objects mentioned. The bowls are final, affecting the whole. The trumpets did not affect man until the fifth trumpet. The bowls fall on mankind from the very first. So this is a much more severe judgment, the final judgment, the final downfall of Satan's allies here, the sea beast, the land beast, and the prostitute that we next will meet. The third bowl, remember the souls under the altar in the fifth seal in chapter six, they're going to have their causes vindicated now. Uh, you have uh, as the sixth 
I think one of these uh, bowls, you have Armageddon mentioned. And again, when you talk about the mark of the beast or Armageddon, that terminology, those two terms out of Revelation, there have been so many books written about that. And Armageddon is just uh, uh, a transliteration of, of uh, Armageddon. Uh, Megiddo was a mountain, and that's where many of the ancient battles took place. So Armageddon is just referring to a place. It's referring to a mountain range uh, where many of the uh, very big battles, catastrophic battles, turning points happen in Mount Megiddo. And so this battle symbolized righteousness and evil locked in deadly combat, spiritual battle, not physical battle, is uh, the idea obviously here, but it just stands because it had that in the mind of so many Jewish people. It was where fantastic battles took place, turning points, very catastrophic battles took place. And so he would use that symbol just to describe the ultimate battle between uh, God and Satan acted out by the different parts who, who were acting uh, with their uh, approval. The, the Christians uh, with God's approval and the non-Christians in the Roman Empire with Satan's approval. So it's no big deal. It's like 666. Books and books and books have been written about it. And all it was is one more symbol out of many symbols in Revelation showing uh, the ultimate final battle between the enemies of God, in this case, the Roman Empire is being described, between them and God's spiritual forces. So it's not nearly the big uh, thing that people have made it, not by any means. And the fact that so many things have been said about it that it turned out to be wrong, that in itself ought to make us look for a symbolic application and not a literal one. The seventh bowl is uh, for the, on the air because the devil is called the prince of powers of the air in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. Okay, now, let's get to the scarlet woman as worldly Rome or materialistic Rome described in chapter 17. It says she was sitting upon many waters, and that would suggest the ancient Babylon uh, on the Euphrates River. Jeremiah 51 will tell you about that. The application here is to Rome sitting over many peoples. And she did uh, control many former individual nations had become a part of the Roman Empire. She had taken them over and the wise ones gave themselves up before they had to be killed out. The scarlet, scarlet colored beasts suggests sin covered. Though your sins be as scarlet, they should be as white as snow, Isaiah 118. Uh, the beasts of chapter 13 had received power from Satan, and he is the beast being described, and the prostitute, the scarlet woman, is sitting on the beast. So political Rome is supporting worldly Rome, uh, the prostitute in this case. I think that's a very important point here. I, you know, we have a problem understanding how, how much God despises literally liter uh, materialism. He, he, he despises it. If you read the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, who is writing to the Gentile world, who was all caught up in materialism, not that the Jews weren't, some of them, but uh, he talks so much about money in the book of Luke. Read it all the way through. I'm, I'm in book Luke right now in my reading schedule. It's amazing how much is in Luke about money. Let me give you one passage. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Be a process, but you can get there. He says, you cannot serve both God and money. He could have said, you can't serve both God and entertainment. He's, he could have said, you cannot serve both God and uh, your career. He could have said a lot of things besides money, but he just got right down to the bottom line. He said, this is it. You can't serve God and money because all of this other stuff is materialistic. The Pharisees, 
Now, these are the most religious uh, folks in Jesus' ministry, uh, as far as the Jewish group. They were a lot stricter. They were a lot more literal in translating the Old Testament than people like the Sadducees and Herodians, etc. But he says the Pharisees who loved money, religious folks, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. Good grief. He said to them, you're the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. And so there's, there's chapter 17 about the prostitute. And then chapter 18 is a, a, a funeral dirge about her uh, being taken out. Uh, because it affected everyone's way of life, their money, their materialism, all of that. We'll get to chapter 18. You can read ahead if you want to, but uh, chapter 18 describes the sadness of people having lost all of the materialism that Rome had collected. And I don't think I need to make application to you in America. Uh, we are, compared to the rest of the world, pretty rich. And I, I look at people, and I, I've been around uh, enough to know. I've been to enough uh, countries to know how most people in the world live. I've been to Habitat for Humanity headquarters in Georgia. I've seen the kind of houses that they build in all the different nations where Habitat for Humanity, one of my very good friends, Dave Malutnock, is the CEO now of Hope Worldwide, but he used to be the main financial guy with Habitat for Humanity for 70 Nations. And uh, he took me and showed me these houses. And these houses would have been considered great houses in the countries where they were being built. You and I honestly wouldn't want to live in them. Uh, but other nations, they, they have so little and we have so much and so Luke is a good book for all of us to read to make sure where our heart is and where our money is. There is a close connection between our pocketbook and our heart. Mark it down. And that's another lesson for another time, too. But you read the book of Luke. You'll see what I'm talking about. Now, when I saw her, this is the prostitute. Uh he was greatly amazed. And the angel said to me, why are you astonished? I'll explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast she rides, which has seven heads and 10 horns. The beast, which you saw once was and is not, that refers to that Nero, uh, what they call the Nero Redivivus myth, that Domitian was sort of the uh, revival of the spirit and power of Nero. The beast which you saw once was, is not, will come up out of the abyss. That's where the demons are and Satan. So, uh, and go to its destruction. The inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world would be astonished when they see the beast because it once was, is not, and yet will come. Now, here's the interesting part. Usually seven or other numbers are simply symbols in the book of Revelation. But we said in chapters two and three, when seven churches were named, because they were described in such detail, they, there, were, there was seven of them, but they were literal churches. And the seven just showed the complete picture of the church in the end of the first century. But here, because he describes these different emperors, the heads of the political state, because he describes the heads, uh, I think he's talking about a literal sequence, which gives us one point that I think is very important. He says, the seven heads are the seven hills on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. But when he does, he must remain only a little while. The beast who once was and is now an eighth, uh, and now is, is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven. He's part of the king, the emperor lineage, and, and he is going to his destruction as well. 
And then he mentions, I think, a symbolic number. The 10 horns you saw are 10 kings. They've not received a kingdom. They are future kings that will come in uh, and for one hour receive their authority as kings with the beast. Um, he says one hour here because a thousand years is as a day to God. So it's a short period of time. So those are in the future, but he is talking about a series of eight kings here. Now, let's briefly look at that. I'll tell you why I think it is important. He says the beast was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go under perdition. That probably reflects the Nero Redivivus concept as we saw back in chapter 13. The one that was about to come out would refer to Domitian, the next great persecutor after Nero. But he gives this sequence of seven. He says in uh, this uh, sequence, five are fallen. One is presently, another is about to come, and he'll only last a little while. But then you'll have the eighth one that I think points to Domitian. Now, let's look at the names here. Julius Caesar is often referred to as the uh, first Roman emperor, but they didn't have the government set in place to run the way that it ran from that point forward until Augustus. So you got Augustus, uh, Tiberius, uh, Caligula. Uh, I can't even read all these. I've got something covering that up. But the, uh, the, the fifth one uh, was Nero in this list. And then he says, you've got another coming up, or maybe I'm confused now because I can't read the writing here. But the one that would come up only for a little while would be Titus. He only reigned three years. And then you get to the eighth one, which would be Domitian. And so Galba, Otho, and Vitellius uh, did fit in after Nero, but they didn't last. But I mean, they weren't really recognized kingdom-wide as emperors. So they're left out of most lists. So what we have in here, and you can look at the notes more carefully later, John's visions, I think, were given to him on the Isle of Patmos where he had been banished to in his persecution. Uh, I think he received these messages of revelation during the reign of Vespasian between 69 and 79 and did not publish them until Domitian's time after returning from Patmos. The reason I think that's important is because it was a prophecy of what was about to happen, because uh, I don't think it at all kicked into gear. This was, in that sense, a predictive prophecy about what was going to happen. But you had had the five or the six with Vespasian, and then you had the one that came for a little while, number seven, Domitian would be the eighth in the sequence. So you can read that a little more. I would advise you to get my book, uh, Revelation Revealed, because I go into some detail there. And I think uh, many authors now have taken that position. Uh, a long time ago, people said, well, he wrote during the time of Domitian. I don't think so. I think he wrote when he was banished uh, and then later published it during the actual reign of Domitian, closer to the time that he was going to build his statues and demand to be worshipped as Lord God Domitian. Uh, the woman on many waters, it says the beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They'll bring her to ruin, leave her naked. They'll eat her flesh, burn her with fire, for God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose. By agreeing to hand over to the beast their royal authority until God's words are fulfilled, the woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. Here's what I think that last part means. Now, the beast and the false prophet were all in cahoots to have emperor worship done. And the political system was okay with the things that were going on in the empire to a certain extent. But even the Roman Senate had their limitations. Uh, they went along with the sins of Rome in most ways. But finally, the worldly part of Rome became so bad that they learned to hate it. And I think we can understand that. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that goes on in political circles. You and I know that. But now we've reached a point that things have gotten so bad and so dangerous 
even to politicians, gotten so dangerous that all of a sudden the worldliness is being second-guessed. We're saying, wait a minute, this is going too far. And there are people speaking out about various aspects of the sin of our country and saying, okay, too far, too far. They brought it on by allowing a lot of it, but it can reach a point where you hate what it becomes because it goes farther. Satan always overdoes it. And so what seems good to most people who don't know Christ, what seems good, ultimately, you're going to think, wait a minute, too far we have gone. So that's what I think this last part talks about. In chapter 18, we'll look at the fall of the prostitute and how people mourned her death because it cut off their materialism. And that one is actually pretty plain in the next part of it. So that was a bird's eye view, an overview of uh, the book of Revelation chapters 13 to 17. We'll pick up in 18 next time and go through the end of the book, 18 through 22. We'll get to the thousand year reign uh, in chapter 20 and talk about what that does mean, what it does not mean. But at any rate, I know I've gone fast. God bless you for hanging in there. You're going to have to do some work on your own. There is no way possible for, I think, anyone. There are guys that are better than me, I'm sure. Uh, but I don't think anyone can go through the book of Revelation in five lessons and really get it all completely explained to the full so that there are no questions left. Uh, I have some questions left myself, but uh, at any rate, it is an overview, and I want you to do some reading and studying yourself, and uh, I think you will benefit from it. You want to always leave as a teacher. You always want to leave some things dangling in the air. And I'm leaving uh, chapters 18 through 22 dangling in the air till next week. But even after next week, there will be things that we've talked about that will be dangling in the air and raising questions in your mind. That's good. That means that you need to study. I want you to be like the uh, people were in the, the city of Berea when Paul went there. It said of the Bereans that they were eager to hear Paul. They weren't, you know, they, they were not questioning everything in advance. They wanted to hear Paul, but it says they checked what he said by the scriptures to make sure that what he said was true. And so as a speaker, I never want anyone to walk away and say, well, here's what Gordon said. And if Gordon said it, that's good enough for me. No, it's not. It's not good enough for you. God holds you responsible to study yourself. And so I hope you've heard me like the Bereans heard Paul with great eagerness. But I also hope you'll get into the Bible and do some study in a further way that will help you. And I've got some more detailed teaching in my practical exposition entitled Revelation Revealed. You can get that from dpibooks.com. Do some further study in that way. But God bless you for hanging in there and letting me be a motor mouth tonight. I know I'm talking fast. I'm 80 years old. You should have seen me when I was 40. <laughs> so uh, be thankful I'm an old guy and can't talk as fast as I used to talk. But I, I love you guys for wanting to learn and hanging in and listening. Uh, I just love God's people. Uh, I'm part of the family. We're all in there. We all. We're all kind of people, all mixed up into one, and that's what makes families families. And Teresa and I were talking about that today as we read through our uh, book on marriage that talks about our family background. We, we got all kinds back there. Uh, we broke out laughing when we said that not only did we have a lot of dysfunction in our extended family, but on both sides, we had people who had actually killed their mates. And we both laughed because we have had. I mean, we got all kinds of folks in our background, trust me. But we still were family. I was around these people that had killed their mates and gotten by with it. I was around them all the time. Fished and hunted with my great uncle that killed his wife and got by in a Dallas court. And we all knew he was guilty. <laughs> but uh, anyway, there's lots of stuff in a family. 
we got some dysfunction, but what we got in common is Jesus and Jesus fixes it and he makes us one and we're all together in this. And I'm glad to be with you tonight. And finally, at long last, I'm going to shut up. Hello. Good evening. Thank you so much, Gordon, um, for sharing your thoughts and insights about revelations. Thank you for sharing your thoughts and insights about your family dysfunction. Uh, I'm sure we all can relate to that. Um, I don't want to kill my wife yet. She probably want to kill me, but it's all good. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, but again, Jordan, thank you. And um, definitely appreciate your thoughts and insights definitely give us some perspective. It's just so, so much symbolism that you never think you will be able to understand. And then just how you're explaining it kind of gives us like hope, like, wow, I really can't understand it. Wow. These were real people. Wow. This really happened. And so God is amazing. God knows the end from the beginning. And uh, again, thank you brother for, for, for just sharing your experience and your thoughts and insight about revelations. I just want to um, invite everyone back for the conclusion. Uh, be ready to go next week as we finish off Revelations. Um, it definitely should inspire you to dig deeper in your Bible study. And don't leave it there. Just keep digging deeper and, uh, and just, you know, doing your best to understand what God is really trying to teach us through his word. Um, again, go ahead and thank you. After today's prayer, uh, everyone will be dismissed. And so let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Righteous Father, we come before you now uh, just so thankful for to know that you are in total control, God. You always give us your best. You have a, our best interests in mind. And you always know what's best, God. And it's all in your word. And, and, I, and I'm so thankful, God, that you, you, uh, you gave us your word so that we could just know who we are, what we need to be, and how we need to go about living this life on earth until we meet, be with you in heaven forever, God. So I just pray, God, you give us great insight and understanding. You continue to give us great insight and understanding to your word. Continue to make it clear who we are, what we need to be as your people on earth, God. That, and we do our part. Uh, continue to be with all the leaders, God, as they strive to help push our church moving forward, God. Uh, again, thank you for... Uh, Gordon and all his experience and the love you show him that he's sharing with us, God. And I just pray, God, we do our part as your people, as a true Mount Zion, God. Uh, so thank you again for your love, mercy, and grace. Uh, be with us. We love you. And uh, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.